Um, real quick, we've been doing this uh, series on the miracles of Elisha. This is our 16th miracle that we're looking at today. And this is our last miracle of Elisha that we're like, oh, it's been unbearable. Just kidding. <laughs> Bear puns. There you go. So um, next week, we, I'm really, really excited. Uh, we're going to be starting a new uh, book, and we're probably going to be in it for a little while. And it's the book of Exodus. So I'm really excited. We've got a little logo. Right there, it's a little bright, I'll tone it down, but yep, the book of Exodus will be starting, and um, we did Genesis, as you know, and then we went and did Philippians, and then uh, we're hopping back to Exodus, after Exodus, we'll probably do another New Testament book, or who knows, maybe Jesus will be back by then, and we'll all know everything about the Word of God, because we'll be in heaven. That would be great, right? All right, it'll be awesome. Um, so if you have a friend that wants to come in right at the beginning of Exodus, it's it's a real amazing story of how God saves and God redeems his people. Uh, next week will be a real good introduction for us to see how that all works. But today, we're going to be studying Elisha and the last miracle of Elisha, and it's called Don't Get Trampled. Don't Get Trampled. So let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your word, and we pray that you would use your word by your spirit to change our hearts. We cannot change ourselves. Only your grace changes us. No matter what uh, we want to see happen, it doesn't matter how much we want it. Lord, your grace is so powerful and your love is so wonderful that you change us as we read your word, as we trust it, and as we humble ourselves before you. Lord, our role is to get lower and become more dependent upon you. And I pray you'd help us to do that today. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Like I said, we've been studying the miracles of Elisha. And Elisha came after Elijah. And Elijah was a great picture of who? Jesus. You guys, this is your final exam today. And so Jesus, Elijah, represents Jesus. He came and he battled sin and he won and, and he was involved in judgment-type miracles. And then Elisha walked around with Elijah for a few years, got to know him, and then the ministry passed from Elijah to Elisha. And who does Elisha represent? The church, that's right. And as the church, we go about doing the same ministry that Jesus did, but our miracles have tended to be on the gracious side, and we've been, we've been seeing how we're, we're very kind and loving, and, and sin has already been dealt with, and so we have this opportunity to, to bless people and to serve them and to minister to them the new covenant where we're helping them in so many ways. And we've seen that through all these different miracles of Elisha, how we're supposed to expect ministry to just happen. We trust in the Lord. We, how many times have we talked about faith and trusting in the Lord when it came to Elisha? Almost every week we have talked about how Elisha just trusted the Lord and he would pray and he believed that God answered his prayers. He would continue believing. He, he never stopped believing. And we see all these different people, the king and Naaman and all these, his servant Gehazi, remember that loser? Okay, so we've had all these different guys that have been just unbelieving. 
And guess what? Today, that doesn't stop. We see more illustrations of how believing Elisha is and his friends and how unbelieving so many people in the world are. And we're going to see God's, again, power and his miracles displayed for us. This is probably one of the greatest miracles uh, that we're going to see uh, spelled out for us. Now, this is a longer section, and we're going to read it all in one, one setting. I'm just going to read it to you guys. But we're going to read all the rest from 624 through the end of chapter 6 and all of chapter 7. That is our text for today. And so, yeah, one day. So I'm just going to read the whole thing. And then we're going to step back and we're going to make some observations on it. Okay. Um, but I, it's, I feel it's very important for us to see the whole connection, the whole thing. And I want you to be paying attention to who believes and who doubts and the different behaviors associated with believers and doubters. Okay? So, chapter 6, verse 24 of Second Kings starts like this. And it happened after this that Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, gathered his army and they went up and besieged Samaria. And there was a great famine in Samaria. And indeed, they besieged it until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and one-fourth of a cab of dove's droppings for five shekels of silver. Then, as the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him saying, Help, O oh my Lord, O oh king. And he said, If the Lord does not help you, where can I help, uh, find help for you? From the, Lord, uh, from the threshing floor to the wine, or from the wine press. Then the king said to her, What is troubling you? And she answered, This woman said to me, Give me your son, that we may eat him today, and we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and ate him. And I said to her on the next day, Give me your son, that we may eat him. But she had hidden her son. Now it happened when the king heard the words of the woman that he tore his clothes and, he pa and as he passed by on the wall and the people looked and there underneath he had sackcloth on his body. Then he said, God do so to me and more also if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on him today. But Elisha was sitting in the house, just sitting there, with the elders, and the elders were sitting with him. And the king sent a man ahead of him. But before the messenger came to him, he said to the elders, Do you see how this son of a murderer has sent someone to take away my head? Look, when the messenger comes, shut the door and hold him Fast at the door. Is not the sound of his master's feet behind him? 
And while he was still talking with them, there was the messenger coming down to him. And the king said, Surely this calamity is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? Then Elisha said, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord. Tomorrow about this time, a seah of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel and two seahs of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. So an officer on whose hand the king leaned answered the man of God and said, Look, if the Lord would make windows in heaven, how could this thing be? And he said, In fact, you shall see it with your eyes, but you shall not eat of it. Now, there were four leprous men at the entrance of the gate. And they said to one another, Why are we sitting here until we die? If we say we will enter the city, the famine is in the city, and we shall die there. And if we sit here, we die also. Now therefore, come, let us surrender to the army of the Syrians. If they keep us alive, we shall live. If they kill us, we shall only die. And they rose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. And when they had come to the outskirts of the Syrian camp, to their surprise, no one was there. For the Lord had caused the army of the Syrians to hear the noise of chariots and the noise of horses, the noise of a great army. So they said to one another, Look, the king of Israel has hired against us the king of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians to attack us. Therefore they rose and fled at twilight and left the camp intact, their tents, their horses, and their donkeys. And they fled for their lives. And when these lepers came to the outskirts of the camp, they went into one tent, and they ate and drank and carried from it silver and gold and clothing and went and hid them. And they came back and entered another tent and carried some from there also and went and hid it. Then they said to one another, What we're doing is not right. This day is a day of good news. And we remain silent. If we wait until morning light, some punishment will come upon us. Now, therefore, come, let us go and tell the king's household. So they went and called to the gatekeepers of the city and told them, saying, We went to the Syrian camp, and surprisingly, no one was there. Not a human sound, only horses and donkeys tied and tents intact. And the gatekeepers called out, and they told it to the king's household inside. So the king arose in the night and said to his servants, Let me now tell you what the Syrians have done to us. They know we are hungry, therefore they have gone out of the camp and hid themselves in the field, saying, When they come out of the city, we shall catch them alive and get into the city. And one of his servants answered and said, Please, let several men take Five of the remaining horses which are left in the city, uh, look, they may either 
become like all the multitude of Israel that are left in it, or indeed I say they may become like the multitude of all Israel from whom those who are consumed. So let us send them and see. Therefore, they took two chariots with horses, and the king sent them in the direction of the Syrian army, saying, Go and see. And they went after them to the Jordan, and indeed all the road was full of the garments and weapons which the Syrians had thrown away in their haste. So the messengers returned and told the king, then the people went out and plundered the tents of the Syrians. So a seah of fine flour was sold for a shekel and two seahs of barley for a shekel, according to the word of the Lord. Now the king had appointed an, the officer on whose hand he had leaned. He had appointed him as charge of the gate. But when the people, uh, the people trampled him in the gate and he died, just as the man of God had said who spoke when the king came down to him. So it happened just as the man of God had spoken to the king, saying, Two sayas of barley for a shekel and a say of fine flour for a shekel shall be sold tomorrow about this time in the gate of Samaria. Then that officer had answered the man of God and said, Now look, if the Lord would make the windows in heaven open, could such a thing be? And he said, in fact, you shall see it with your eyes, but you shall not eat of it. And so it happened to him, for the people trampled him in the gate, and he died. That was a lot, right? <laughs> that was a long story, but I think it was very important for us to see the beginning all the way through to the end so that we could say, not a penny was spent, no gift was ever offered, and no fight was fought. But God brought the victory by grace. And that's how God works. The church has been around now for 2,000 years. We've had, we've had entire countries make us illegal. We've had other religions try to wipe us out. We, you know, at one time, uh, Thomas, the disciple Thomas, you remember Doubting Thomas? Well, he became a great pastor and leader and missionary. Do you know where he went? India. He went to India. And in India, it's, it's told us that he baptized over 250,000 people just by himself. That is a powerful ministry. Okay, and these were called the disciples of Thomas. They were they, there was this church that started in India, and for a, a few hundred years, it was probably the biggest church in the whole world until a group of enemies came in and killed all the Christians in India. And it spread even from India during that time all the way to China. They have markings they found on the road from India to China with Christian writings on it within like thirty years of Paul, like really old markings okay so the church has gone through all these struggles and when they came in and they killed all those believers in india a lot of people thought well there's the end of the church okay but but god's not done he's not done the church has endured the church has continued and the church hasn't fired a bullet to make that happen we don't fight the way that the world fights. The church, if you look at it, has grown and grown and grown and grown bigger. Now, 
Is everyone in the church perfect? Are all the different versions and churches and denominations, are they all right on? No, but Jesus said it was going to be like that. When he said, uh, he told a parable of the, the wheat and the tares, and he said the church is like uh, someone's putting, uh, growing some wheat, and then there's some weeds in there, and someone said, sure, well, should we go in and pluck up all the weeds? And Jesus is like, no, 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 because if you try to pluck up all the weeds, you'll take the wheat with it. I'll take care of that at the end. I'll do all the sorting out. It's just going to grow. It's going to grow. And so the way that the church has always done this is by love, by martyrdom, by giving our lives, giving our possessions, by serving and loving people. We never fire a shot. We never force anyone. And then there were times when like the popes and stuff like that, they did force people. Was that good or bad? That was terrible, right? That is not how the church is supposed to fight. It's not how the victory is won. The victory is won by love and by grace. Okay? Now, we saw this king in Israel, Jehoram. And this king is so freaked out about the, the famine and the attack of the enemy and the, the siege around him that he tries to kill God's prophet because he has no answers. But what is Elisha doing when the king tries to come and kill him? He is chilling in his crib. He's hanging out in his house. He says it was just sitting there in his house with the elders. He's just waiting on the Lord with his friends. He is not freaked out. He never stops trusting in the Lord. Now, Elisha is involved in the siege too. Elisha is hungry. All the, his friends are hungry, but they never stop trusting the power of the Lord or the love of the Lord. And when you say, I trust in the Lord, those are the two things you need to understand that you're putting your trust in. That God is powerful and that God is loving. We don't just have this nebulous trust of, oh, I just trust it's all going to work out. No. We have a specific trust that God is powerful and that God is loving. A psalm, uh, I think it's 62 or 68, picks that up, and he says, two things have I heard from the scriptures, God, that you, O God, are powerful and you, O God, are loving. And those are very important things that we've seen Elisha continually demonstrate. Now, it's, I'm going to focus back on that part. It says, It happened when Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, gathered his army. He went up and besieged Samaria, and there was a great famine in Samaria. If you were to remember back to our last study, Elisha had blinded the, the, the Syrian raiders, the bands of raiders. They were kind of like commandos who would come into Israel, well, the northern part of Israel called Samaria, and they would attack and do little attacks. And, and a big group of them had come, and the Lord blinded them, and they came in, and they loved them and served them a feast, the Israelites did, and then sent them back. And it said those bands of raiders didn't ever come back into the, the land. But then the next verse we read, then the, uh, the king gathered his army and went up and besieged Syria, Samaria. So is that a contradiction in the Bible? And the answer is no. The first group were these commandos, these independent little raiding parties that would come by. Those stopped. But now the king got his entire army, all of his uh, chariots and horses and everything, and he went and surrounded them. 
But we have to ask this question right now. Why did God allow this enemy to invade the people of God, his own people? Why would God do that? And here, let's personalize it. Why does God allow difficult things to happen in your life? Are you a child of God? Okay, well, why then does God, and that's a great question, why? Why would this happen? Why does that happen? It's a good thing for us to think about. Well, in this situation, he is allowing it because his people have continued in sin and in idolatry, and they will not repent. And so this trial is the discipline of God. Now, are all your trials the discipline of God? No, they're not all the discipline of God, but they might be the discipline of God. And I can't tell you which is which right now. I don't have God's view. I don't have God's vision. I can't tell you always whether your specific trial is God's discipline or whether it's more like Job. See, Job wasn't being disciplined by the Lord, was he? God was showing off to all the angels and everyone observing, even for us, God was showing off the character that Job had. He says, I have cho- I'm doing this because I know Job trusts me. I know it. So Job got trials for trusting in the Lord. Hmm, interesting. But here, this is definitely a discipline of the Lord. Now in Isaiah chapter 10, verses 5 and 6, it talks specifically about this time in history. Isaiah prophesied, he said, Woe to Assyria, this is where that northern kingdom that's coming down right now, the rod of my anger and the staff in whose hand is my indignation. Did you recognize that? A rod. He calls Assyria his rod and his staff. He says, I will send him against an ungodly nation. Who's the ungodly nation? Israel, his people. And against the people of my wrath, I will give him charge to seize the spoil, to take prey, and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. The rod and the staff, these are God's instruments of discipline. Now, one of the most famous scriptures in all the world is Psalm 23, right? (laughs) Um, People carve this on, on... plaques and sticks, and uh, uh, it's just very popular. And it goes, the Lord is my shepherd all, I shall not want all. He makes me to lie down in green pastures all. He leads me beside still waters all. So nice. He restores my soul. (laughs) Yeah. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Oh, yeah. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. (gasps) And your rod and your staff, they comfort me. What is his rod and his staff? It's his discipline. It's his discipline. And David says, My heart trusts in the Lord, and I love the Lord. And I am excited that he disciplines me. Wow. 
Because I don't know if I always have that heart. But I want a heart like David. There's two responses to the discipline of God, okay? You can have a hard heart, which is a response of flesh, where you complain about the discipline of God, you are angry about the discipline of God, you run from God, and you have bitterness. Does that describe you when you face God's discipline, his rod and his staff? Or the other response, the response of the Spirit, which is a soft heart, which is characterized by repentance. Oh, Lord, I I did mess up. I confess my sin. And by drawing near to God, by showing up at church, by opening up your Bible, by kneeling in prayer and saying, I'm going to draw near. I'm not going to run away. I'm going to draw near. God is going to discipline you if you're his child. But you do have a choice in how you respond. You can have a hard heart or a soft heart. Well, speaking of a hard heart, the king of Israel is cruising along the top of the wall. He's cruising up there. And a woman cried out to him and said, Help, my lord, O king. And the king said, If the Lord does not help you, where can I find help from you? From the threshing floor, from from the wine press. And the king said to her, what is troubling you? And she answered, this woman said to me, give me your son, we'll eat him, then we'll eat mine tomorrow. It's this big, gross, disgusting situation that they were in. And then it says that the king had tore his clothes and he had sackcloth underneath his clothes showing that he was Mourning, he was sad, he was angry and bitter. And he said, I'm going to go kill Elisha. I'm going to go chop off his head. We don't see here that the people of God ever prayed. You don't see that. You see that from one group, Elisha and his buddies. They call them the elders. And the king, who's supposed to be leading them, he never prayed. And this woman asked the king for help, but she's asking the wrong person, isn't she? Have you ever asked the wrong person? Like when you're explaining your whole issue to the tech support guy on the phone, and then they just transfer you to another guy in another department, and you explain to him, and then he says, oh, I can't handle that, and he transfers you back to the first guy. Ugh. I hate that. (laughs) All right. Well, Jeremiah 17.5. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart departs from the Lord. But then it continues on. It says, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose hope is in the Lord. This king that we've seen, Jehoram, he knows nothing about trusting in the Lord. In fact, he practices his insults and doubting words toward God. He, just, he, he tries to come up with the best insults towards God and towards people who trust in God. And he has no answers himself. Look, when she asks him, what should we do? I've got this horrible situation. He's like, I don't know. He doesn't know. But if someone says, well, I'm going to trust in the Lord, he's like, you idiot. 
What's the solution to our problems in this country today? I don't know. Well, let's try trusting in the Lord. You idiot! He knows he can't do anything, but he refuses to turn to God. He truly thinks God will not help him, and for whatever he reasons, he whatever reason he believes, it, it's not God's will to help. He literally thinks this came from the Lord. What does it say at the end of the chapter? He says, "What good is it for me to wait upon the Lord?" And I see that heart in this world. People don't believe that God will help. Why not? Because there are very few people living by faith, showing them that God will help and will answer prayers. You know, I thank God for people like George Mueller and his books that are still out there. And if you have not read George Mueller's books, you're a goober. Read George Mueller's, the narratives of George Mueller. It's free. Like, if you need a copy, I'll buy you 10. It's so, and, and not only George Mueller, but Hudson Taylor, these guys just believe that the Lord would answer their prayers. They never asked for money. Whenever they needed money, they would simply call upon the Lord. And the Lord never let them down. And this is in our day and age. For whatever reason, this king does not believe God will help him. Do you ever allow your heart to think that way? Well, I guess I just need to suffer and die. If God loved me, he would have stopped this from, or, or he would have helped by now. And so, you know, we don't ask anymore. We don't seek him anymore. We give up. We shrink back. If this is you, I want to encourage your faith. Seek him till you die. Don't ever stop when it even looks like it's over. Do what Job did. Job said, even though he slay me, I will trust in him. So, the effect of not living with this kind of faith is despair. You guys ever felt despair? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And despair is the worst. It leads to horrible decisions, like eating your children. That's a bad decision. The people shouldn't have despaired. They were the people of God. Why would God bring you to a place where that is, you really think that's what God wants you to do? Eat your kid? Not a time for a joke. So, in Leviticus chapter 26, this is going to blow your mind. Leviticus 26, verse 27. God says, after all this, if you do not obey me, but walk contrary to me, then I also will walk contrary to you in fury, and I, even I, will chastise you seven times for your sins, and you shall eat the flesh of your sons, and you shall eat the flesh of your daughters. God already warned them. 
Also, he does the same thing in Deuteronomy 28 and Deuteronomy, well, 28, yeah, just 28. Why? Why does God do this? Because God knows what it takes to wake people up sometimes. He warned his people about the consequences of walking away from him. He's saying it's not just you that's going to be affected. Your offspring will suffer because you are an idiot. Because you turn away from the living God and live a life of sin, your kids will be consumed by you and by your sin, and it's your fault. And I'm not going to stop it, God says. This is sad. It's not just you, but your sin has devastating consequences to those people around you in your life. Have you ever been affected by the sins of another person? That pain God allowed in your life is to remind you not to walk in those sins. So you don't hurt the innocent people around you. Dude, it was so bad growing up the way I grew up. My dad was such a jerk and he drank and ate and, and, and beat us and, and that's why I hate God today. Really? So you're saying that you understand the pain and the consequence of someone living in sin and you're going to decide to just live in sin also. That sounds stupid to me. Now, I understand the heart because it's a hard heart that says, you don't understand what I've been through. You don't understand how much I've hurt. If God loved me, God does love you. Your dad didn't love you, but God does love you. That's the truth. Wow. It's an amazing way that people, bless you, deal with the hard times that they grew up with. Okay. Well, now we see also that this king was wearing sackcloth. Well, does that mean that this king was humble and doing the right thing? No, this king was an idiot. This king was unbelieving 100% of the way, okay? Joel chapter 2, verse 13 tells us, So rend your heart. Break, that means break, rip your heart and not your garments. What did the king do? Oh, he ripped his, oh, I'm so upset. Ah. But he says, return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. So the king, it looks like he's doing the right thing, but internally, invisibly, he's not. He doesn't seek the Lord. He sa the Lord says, return to me is the instruction, and this king says, I'm going to go kill your priest. Is that the same thing as returning to God? No. Let's murder someone. No. Trust in his attributes, not your actions. See, he could have trusted that God was, what's it say? Slow to anger, of great kindness, and relents from doing harm. Okay, well, this situation doesn't look like that, but I'm going to believe it anyway. That's turning to the Lord. Oh, my life really sucks right now. I'm going to believe that the Lord still loves me. Well, I've done wrong things. You know what? I'm going to confess them and repent and return to the Lord. And I'm going to trust that he will have mercy upon me. 
the king's like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to rip my, and I'm going to wear the, and I'm going to, and I'll show everyone how much I'm trying to change stuff, how upset I am about my situation. God doesn't care how upset you are about your horrible life. He only cares whether you're going to turn to him and trust him or not. Oh, but you don't know how upset I am. I'm so upset. God doesn't care. God is doing it to you so that you'll return to him. And what happens when you turn to him? He's gracious. He's slow to anger. He's great kindness. He relents from doing harm. But this king, he doesn't understand grace. He's, he, God to him is still this cosmic judge that just is mean to certain people until they change and then he's not mean anymore. It's not how God works. This king wanted to kill Elisha, which means he refuses to accept responsibility for his own actions. The king sins him and his idolatry and him telling all the people, let's go worship Baal. Let's go worship Molech. Let's go worship these false gods. That was what has brought all this about. And he takes no responsibility for it at all. He's just like, God's mean to us now. Romans 8, 7 says that the carnal mind is always at war against God, right? And here we see that illustrated. And this is us in the flesh. When we're in the flesh, we are God's enemy. And it's easy to say, oh, this king is so stupid. But he's a picture of our flesh. The natural you will always choose to rebel against God. And that's why the natural you, the flesh, needs to die. And that's what happens at the cross. When we identify with Jesus on the cross and say, wow, Jesus died on the cross and my sin, my flesh, gets thrown up there on the cross, nailed to the cross in his body, and as he dies, my flesh's power dies also. That's what happens. It's when we see Jesus being destroyed by the perfect anger of God, we can throw our flesh in the same pot. And our flesh is destroyed also. How do I have victory over my flesh in these crazy, intense desires that I have to sin? The cross. There is no other solution. All the other solutions, the 12-step programs, the you if you try this, if you surround yourself with these people and these things, if you do this, if you read this book, all of it doesn't produce what it needs to produce, which is the death of the flesh. The only other solution is for you to kill yourself. That will end your flesh, right? And, and unfortunately, I know people that have killed themselves because they were struggling with sin. We know in our church, people have killed themselves because their struggle with sin was so intense. And they knew that was an answer. I don't want to struggle with this sin anymore. I'm hurting myself. I'm hurting others. And so I'm going to end it. But it's sad. It's devastating because if they would just look to the cross, if they would just 
see that their flesh can be destroyed there. And as they abide in it, as they meditate upon it, as the cross becomes their life, their flesh is destroyed. That's the other way. That's the good news of the gospel. It's amazing. Well, this king comes with this evil plan to kill Elijah, chop off his head, uh, and Elisha was sitting in his house. Elisha pictures the perfect peace of those who wait upon the Lord for their salvation. Elisha's hungry and he's suffering, but he's not freaking out. He has no fear. He's waiting patiently, praying and trusting. He's like, if I die, I'm going to die waiting for the Lord to save me. That's how Elisha lives. Is that how we live? Psalm 37, 7 says, Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Doesn't that describe this exact situation? Elisha's like, I'm not worried about this king and his little henchmen. The king is coming to kill him and he's not worried. He tells his buddies even about it before he gets there. He's already received divine information. Elisha seems like he's in control. Ooh, I like that word, in control. Do you guys like that word too? Anyone like to be in control? When it seems like this world is constant, that seems like what this world is constantly searching for, how to be in control of my life. And they have all kinds of plans. Oh, if you go to college, you'll be in control of your destiny. If you do this, you'll be in control. If you do that, you'll be in control. But Elisha, he has obtained the peace and the calmness of one who's in control by faith, by trusting the one who really is in control. That's how Elisha did this. If an entire army couldn't get Elisha, like we saw a couple weeks ago, he's not worried about one little guy. An entire army literally came for him. And he's like, be blind. And they're all blind. And he's like, eat a meal. And they all were blessed with this meal. I mean, it's just amazing. So why do you worry? Don't. Trust instead. Pray instead. You have that choice. You do not have to worry. And then the king said, surely this calamity is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? Such immature thinking, this king He's so self-centered. He's like a little kid throwing a temper tantrum. He's not taking any responsibility and no, uh, he's got no repentance. Well, our story shifts to some new characters, these four lepers, four lepers, okay? And what these guys show us is that God chooses whoever he wants to use. And often he chooses people that are so messed up and useless that it makes other people jealous. Anyone can identify with that? We're a room full of those type of people. That's what God does here. And it's what he's done with me using the foolish of this world to confound the wise. Whatever God does with us, it's for his glory alone. Um, we will never be able to solve any problems in our own abilities or our own strength we got to pray and abide, and humility and faith will guide us to victory. 
These guys are the most unlikely guys to be used by God. They're lepers, which means they're what? Outcasts. They're hated. They have no spiritual connection with God. They couldn't go into the temple. They were a picture of sinfulness. They were suffering, and they were undeserving. And they say, why are we sitting here until we die? If we go into the city, there's a famine in the city, we're going to die there. If we stay here, we're going to die anyway. So let's go surrender ourselves to the Syrians. If they keep us alive, we'll live. And if they kill us, who cares? We'll be dead anyway. So these guys, they take a step of faith, which is kind of interesting. Even though they didn't have a lot to depend on, only the mercy of their enemy. That's all they're depending on here. That's what their step of faith. They're taking the step of faith saying, maybe my enemy will not kill me. My enemy who is here to kill me, maybe they won't kill me. That's what they're trusting in. That's what they're trusting in. Now, tell me, how much more can we place our faith in? These guys are shaming us. These guys have nothing to depend on. And yet they can still take steps of faith. We call upon the friend of sinners. They had no invitation from their enemies. They were just going to walk up and hope for the best. We have an everlasting invitation from God. Come to me, all you who are thirsty and who are burdened and heavy laden. I will give you rest. I will be there for you. These guys are showing us it's not hard to have faith. It's not. And so they show up to the Syrian army, and the army is gone. It says in chapter 7, verse 6, For the Lord caused the army of the Syrians to hear the noises of chariots and the noise of horses, the noise of a, noise of a great army. So they said to one another, Look, the king of Israel is hired against us, the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians, to attack us. And I think this is probably the same army and chariots that Elisha had opened the eyes of his servant to see in just the last chapter. Remember, he opened his eyes, they let him see, and he saw chariots of fire and horses of fire and all this. And it's very interesting. Let's nerd out for just a second. It's possible that Adam and Eve had the ability to see and hear angels as well. That before the fall... Um, Mankind had these senses because we are spiritual beings and physical beings. That's very possible. And it's possible that the fall dulled our senses um, and that the witches and the spiritists and the people who can talk to dead people in our day are simply Satan's imitation of that original state. Because people have this desire for spiritual things, right? Right? You have, you know, call and clairvoyance and call 1-900 and I'll tell you your future. Okay, these spiritual things, they have this desire. People all over the place have this desire. That's like, that's what I'm supposed to be, is able to talk to ghosts or whatever. Casper. Maybe they're friendly. Well, as we know, all of that is, is evil. It's the Lord has taken that away at this point, and he said the only safe way to, for you to be involved in spiritual things is through my word and through the Holy Spirit. So don't ever go try to contact your dead loved ones. It's evil. 
and you're not going to talk to the right person. Talk to Saul about that. All right. But then they get convicted and they say, this is, what we're doing is not right. This is a day of good news, and we remain silent. If we wait till the morning light, some punishment's going to come upon us. Now, therefore, let us go and tell the king's house. It's funny that even these lepers have a heart for the hungry people who need salvation. But what happens? They go and they tell the king, and the king, he doesn't believe. He thinks it's a trap. And this lines up with, with everything we've seen about this king, Jehoram. He never believes. He doesn't think that God loves them, and he doesn't believe God is powerful. He doubts, and he refuses to believe the good news. He refuses. But who does believe the good news? All the people who are really hungry and really thirsty all the people who knew they had no hope and were really feeling the pain of their situation. The king, he's got all his reserves and he's the one who gets the best food still. And we know this king is a jerk, so we know he's flaunting it in front of the hungry people. He doesn't know his own need yet. He doesn't really feel his own need yet. And I fear that some of us don't really yet feel how poor spiritually we are. And that one thing is what's keeping us from receiving this free gift of God's grace. God is willing and able to do miracles in your life. What we've seen through all these studies of Elisha is that God is perfectly willing to answer our prayers. That he wants to give us grace and mercy and he's loving but we will not accept it. It's on us because we don't feel the need. And maybe that trial that you're in that you're really upset about, that really hurts, maybe it's God's loving way of helping you understand how hungry you are for him, how spiritually needy we are. Now we see the last part of that chapter is it's proving every detail came true that Elisha spoke in the prophecy. Elisha said, this is going to cost this, this is going to cost this, you're going to see it and not eat it. Boom. Details. This is what's going to happen. And every detail came true because God does not lie. In 1 Kings Chapter 8, verse 56 is a great verse. It says, Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised. There has not failed one word of all his good promise, which he promised through his servant Moses. Ah, Moses also said, if you don't walk with him, you're going to eat your children. That happened too, right? God is not mocked. What we reap, we'll sow. So, what does all this mean? What does all this mean? Number one, the starving people of the city represent the lost and idolatrous people of our world. They have no hope. 
They're not even turning to God. They're still into idols. But guess what? God is going to save many of them. Whoever would run out to where the salvation is, he's there and he'll save them. Number two, Ben-Hadad, the king of the Syrians, he represents and pictures Satan. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be sober and be vigilant, for your adversary the devil walks around like a roaring lion, seeking who he may devour. But, number three, God beat him. God beat him. God gave us victory over him. God gives the goods of the enemy to his people. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 says, Inasmuch as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, likewise shares in the same that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. So Jesus took the authority that Satan had obtained and Jesus took it away from him by allowing himself to be killed on the cross to, to pay for the sins. And he flipped all that authority and all that blessing and he gives it to us that we might be exalted and adopted and empowered by this miracle of mercy that Jesus accomplishes for us. So when God kicked out the Syrians and left all their stuff there, it's a great picture of what Jesus does for us. And number four, the danger of a heart that doubts God's promises, God's word, and God's provision. What happened to the guy who mocked God's promise? He got trampled and killed. He saw it, but he didn't partake in the promise. Maybe he was a guy that came to church all the time, but he said, I'm not going to trust the Lord that much. I'm not going to surrender everything to him. Because I don't believe that God really would answer my prayers. So I'm going to live my life the way I want to live it. I'm going to do the things I want to do. I'm not going to listen to the wisdom that comes or someone saying there's food out there and spiritual. I'm not into all that. I'm going to do what I can see with my own eyes. And I think y'all Christian church people are crazy. Because even if the windows of heaven, which I don't even believe in, even if they opened up, it couldn't work. He doesn't understand. Anyone who... Re so so he, he doubts God's promise. He doubts the word that came from Elisha. And who is God's word? Jesus. And anyone who rejects Jesus will be trampled also. Isn't that crazy? Do you doubt God? We're almost done. Tune in real quick to this last thing because it's super important. We all struggle with doubting God sometimes. No doubt. Ha! That was a good one. <laughs> just came to me. I just, I'm gifted. All right. When you doubt God, what do you do? I want you to remember these couple things. Number one, you need to remember that God is your Father. He's your father. John, 1 John 3, 1, it says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the children of God. 
Number one, remember that God is your father. That everything that happens in your life is because he loves you. But it doesn't feel like that. I don't care. He loves you. That's the truth. But I don't see it. Keep waiting. Keep trusting and you'll see it. But I don't like it that way. Tough. That's the way of the Lord. Number two, remember that Jesus, Jesus is everything God wants you to know about himself. He's the son. He's the perfect revelation. So think about the father. Think about the son. Number three, think about how the cross changes everything. This is what, what we do when we doubt. We remember our father relationship with God. Then we remember Jesus and his loving, kind words. Maybe you remember what he said to the woman caught in adultery. And he says, has anyone condemned you? Well, then neither do I condemn you. You're forgiven. Go and sin no more. Such gracious and kind words Jesus gives us. That's God's heart. Everything you read in the Old Testament, interpret it through the lens of what Jesus says, how Jesus reveals it. That's how we can understand clearly God's heart. Number three, remember the cross changes everything. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, we also, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He says, if you want to progress in this life, you want to run your race, you keep your eyes on Jesus and what Jesus did on the cross. And it changes everything. You will be able to endure your trials. You will be able to love those who are impossible to love. Why? Because you look at the cross and say, he took my sin. He can take your sin. Now I'm going to love you even though you're an idiot. I'm going to love you anyway. I can love you. It's amazing. The word gives plenty of sufficient answers for every single one of our doubts. But we usually don't care. Why? Because it takes time and effort to come to church, to hear his promises, to search them out in your closet, in your home. It takes effort to develop this relationship through the word of God and through prayer. That's why most of us don't care. Because in America, we want answers like this. And God says, I'm not at your beck and call. I'm not going to give you answers all the time in your timing. Look at Job. Job (laughs) never found out why anything happened to him. Ever. He asked the Lord, he's like, I just want answers. Give me answers. And God's like, all right. Let me ask you some questions first. And he goes on for three chapters asking him question after question after question after question. So Job finally said, I'm an idiot. I don't know how anything works, much less why all these very technical and complex things have happened to me. And God's like, yeah. So trust me. 
trust me. Now, I invite all your questions. Ask your questions, but you've got to trust me. That's what Job said. The first thing we need changed is our heart. We need this life-saving miracle of faith to be born in our heart. And it happens as we look unto Jesus. We believe what he did on the cross, and that gives us this life-changing miracle. Now, we've now completed our, our time looking at Elisha and his miracles. And I think that for me, the way that the Lord has really grown me is I have much, much more confidence after, after studying these, after teaching these, I have more confidence in calling upon the Lord that he's going to answer my prayers. Because after reading all this, Elisha was great, but he wasn't a, a wizard. He wasn't Gandalf out there with magic powers. He just believed the word of the Lord. He just prayed. He just trusted. And I know I can do that too. We all can do that. And so we're going we're gonna to pray. We're going to pray now. We're going to wrap up our service. We're going to sing a song. We got communion over here. And our relationship with the Lord is going to be one of he, does, he responds to us. He answers us. He pursues us, first of all, before we even knew it. And then, as we humble ourselves and acknowledge our need for him and feel that hunger, we're going to call upon him, and he's going to do great things in our life. Why? Because you guys are so awesome. No. Because he is loving, and he is powerful, and his character is loving kindness and mercy. And he will answer us when we call. He will answer us when we call. I believe it. You guys believe it with me? All right. We're going to start the book of Exodus next week. Wednesday night, we're going to be still looking in the book of First John, but Wednesday night is a big night of prayer for us. I invite you guys, please come out. If you can get away from your life, we do one hour from 7 to 8, sometimes 8.10, uh, sometimes 8.15, if we're really in the spirit. No, just kidding. Um, but we're keeping it short so that it's not like this whole huge demand on your, on your life. And we got youth group for the kids. And um, I, I, I deeply desire for you guys to join us in prayer. Um, the Lord is accomplishing many things through prayer. And he'll, he, that's how he wants to work. He wants us to ask and he wants to give in response to our asking. I believe that. So I invite you guys, please come out Wednesday night. If you can at all make it, please make it 7 o'clock Wednesday night. Okay? All right, guys, come on up. We're going to sing a song. Would you guys stand with me as we close in prayer? During this song, there's, uh, the communion table is open. I love taking communion after a Bible study because it just kind of helps me realize that Everything I've heard is, is not telling me that I need to do something, but it's telling me that Jesus did something for me. That's what we've talked about today. And if you believe that, if you believe Jesus is your Savior, if you believe that he will respond to you, if he will bless you, then you are absolutely welcome and invited to take communion, to come in and say, Jesus, your body paid for my sin, your broken body was broken from my sin. And, and the cup, which represents your life, your blood, is poured out into me. As my body dies on the cross with you, your life poured into me. And somehow that happens spiritually 
and invisibly, and we don't even know. What am I doing? Wrong. Oh. I'm messing everything up here. So would you guys pray with me? Jesus, thank you for your love. Thank you for these stories about Elisha, your, your humble servant, the man of God, who did nothing but trust you his entire life. And I pray that our church would be a fulfillment of that picture of the church, which he certainly represents. I pray that we as a people would believe your words. We would call upon your name, Jesus. Lord, that we would repent of all doubt. Lord, that we would invest in your kingdom. I pray we would invest on Wednesday nights, invest on Sunday mornings, invest every day with our families with our co-workers, and just I pray we would spend our lives for you. Jesus, you are so good, and you're so faithful, and we just want to be able to trust you at every point. And those of us who are sick right now, and those of us who are in great need, we pray that you would hear our prayers. You would bring healing for your glory, because you are a God of love. We love being your children who, uh, Lord, we can be those who, who behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that he'd give his only son. That we should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus, we love being those people. It is all that we live for is to know you and to make you known in this world. Fill us now with your life with the new wine of your Holy Spirit, Jesus. We need it. We ask for it. Lord, take over our decisions and our heart and our doubts. We love you. We love you, Jesus. We love you so much. In your name we pray. Amen.